listening to the Ed Reach Network. Ed Gamer, episode 142 on EdReach. Adam and Kelly from Hudson Alpha discuss the use of gaming data. This is Ed Gamer for Wednesday, August 27th, 2014. Ed Gamer is part of the EdReach network, edreach.us, giving education a voice. A big voice. This show is dedicated to education gaming on any platform. We will give you the education angle on any type of games ranging from tabletops to MMOs. We will discuss how these games impact student learning and how they can be used effectively within the classroom. I'm Zach. And I'm Adam. And I'm Kelly. Kelly, tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Kelly East, and I am a genetic counselor at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. And I'm quite interested in that title, which we will we will get to. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Uh, let's see. And Adam? Uh, I'm the coordinator of educational outreach here at Hudson Alpha Institute, and um, I do a whole bunch of different things, but one of my primary jobs is to manage a lot of the digital education pieces we do along with my colleague Kelly. Awesome. My name is Zach. Do you guys watch Saturday Night Live? Yes. I just said that awesome. You know the little skit where awesome. They're oh, always, yes. Yes, you did. Sorry. The two, you know, the girl. Okay, forget it. So um, <laughs> my name is Zach Gilbert, and I'm your host. I'm a sixth grade social studies and language arts teacher from Normal, Illinois. And as some of you know, our listeners, watchers out there, Jerry is not here. I'm kind of sad and uh, happy for him. Uh, no, he hasn't left Ed Gamer. So he's he's here. I'm still stuck with him. No, I got a uh, I got a text yesterday. He um, he got invited to a dinner with a big fancy dinner with the owner of the Chicago Cubs, and I think that's pretty cool. So he better be enjoying himself because you know we're gonna have a good time here. I don't know about I don't know. He's probably having lobster. I who knows, and like very expensive hot dogs and caviar. No idea. No idea. <laughs> So uh, now you guys, you're both from, you're both, you both live in Huntsville, Alabama, right? Correct. So, you know, in Illinois, I'm in the central part of the state, which Jerry calls it Southern Illinois because he's geographically challenged. But the uh, uh, when you're in Chicago, anything south of of this road called I-80 uh, in Southern Illinois. Okay, so I'm in the central part of the state. Half the town is St. Louis Cardinal fans. Half of them are. are um, our, our Chicago Cub fans, and I've, that's 100%, so I, I'm going to add a few more percentage, and a very small percentage is uh, Chicago White Sox. So in Alabama, who do you root for? There is no baseball in Alabama. <laughs> there's no, there's no baseball. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be college. So uh, there's no college baseball in Alabama? No. <laughs> wow. So, I think you uh, upset. So, well, I guess it's football. Right. Okay. Which starts tomorrow. <laughs> there you go. So, but Alabama's got a usually has a pretty good baseball team. Ole Miss has a pretty good tradition for baseball. Okay. Yeah, but no one watches. What's that? No one watches. No one. No one watches. Okay. Sorry. So, um, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna get into a little bit of a a, a topic here. I don't want to go too long into it, but um, no, these it's been a couple weeks because now we're going every two weeks for our show. And it's been a few weeks, and since the the tragedy in in Ferguson, uh, in one of the suburbs of, of St. Louis, and considering that I spent a, a week down in uh, in near St. Louis, in East St. Louis, 
um, which is <laughs> more troubled than uh, Ferguson. Um, it was, you know, I had contacted some friends, uh, new friends down there, and uh, you know, sending my thoughts and prayers to them because it, it's just it's been a very difficult time. And then all of a sudden, uh, from the city of Chicago, uh, uh, it's they're from the Jack. I think it's Jackie Jackie Robinson um, Little League team up near in, in the Chicago area uh, makes it and wins the the United States Little League World Series championship. And then they played a team from South Korea who, which was they were really good. They were really good, and they lost to them. But to see those boys up there and um, and, and playing baseball. It was an all-black team. It hasn't happened for years, and um, I thought that was great. I mean, you know, it's true True life is better than, than fiction because it just, you can't plan something like that out. Um, one of the things that they talked about, and this is something I've been seeing for a while, is that especially a lot of the African-American boys that are in my, in my classes, uh, a lot of them, it's just their mother. And they were talking about how, why isn't baseball becoming more, uh, why is it diminishing with uh, African Americans? And most of them, you get your love of baseball from your fathers. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a father around, you don't have that tradition passed on. Where did I get my love of the Chicago Cubs? I got it from my dad. So mm -hmm. it's, um, it's one of those things that it's, it's kind of sad to see that. So they've been turning that around, and it was just awesome to see that team from Chicago really, um, uh, really do a great job. So congrats to them, congrats to them. Um, so game club news. Um, do you, do the schools that you interact with down there in do they have game clubs? Um, maybe. <laughs> um, maybe. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I don't really know. I think that's something you should uh, be looking into, yeah, especially I, with the game that you've developed. So I think that would be a g great idea. Um, so Mike, go ahead. It probably wouldn't hurt. Yeah, uh, because some schools are a little leery about having games being mm -hmm. brought into their classroom. Yeah. Some schools are a little bit more traditional, and uh, we've found that having a game club, introducing it to administration to parents to kids the whole getting everybody on board is usually a, a good thing and it's game clubs a safe environment it's not in a classroom mm -hmm. right so that I think that works out uh, pretty well so my game club looks like it'll be starting in September probably September 12th and I've got I've already got like 40 I have permission slips I already got about 40 permission slips uh, turned in from students already. So, and we get usually between 30 and 40 kids that show up every every other week, uh, Friday after school. And uh, we're going to talk about girl gamers. But I bet half of my kids that show up, uh, around half is usually are usually girls, mm -hmm. which is great. Mm -hmm. So another thing is that uh, we're going to be I'm going to be making a purchase for Civilization 4 so I can get that installed. I got lab time uh, in one of our computer labs because we are. Now, do you guys have one-to-one -one in a lot of the schools down there? I would say not a lot, but more and more. Huntsville they, has what's a, that? The actual Huntsville City Schools has one-to-one. -one. Okay. Do they Now, are they using full-blown laptops, netbooks, Chromebooks, iPads? Uh, they they yes. learn young grades or iPads, and then it switches over to laptops somewhere in okay. elementary. 
Okay, because the the netbooks we have, we have we have laptops, and they're nice. We it's taken three years, but we finally have got. It looks like we've got a decent, solid machine. But of course, they don't have CD-ROMs. Right. And you know, Civilization Four, it can be a digital download, but downloading it on a student computer, getting the filter, the whole thing is it's just a mess. So having CD-ROMs is probably the best way to go. And the only computers that we really have are teacher computers that have that, and then uh, we have some uh, lab that you know have CD-ROMs. So I got them installed these. Uh, saw the software. So I have 15 licenses. I have 30 kids in one class, so we'll have groups of two, which is really perfect. Uh, so they can learn together on how to play civilization. Um, and I teach ancient civilizations. It's I think it's one of the best games um, that can be used for you know for teaching this class. And then of course Minecraft EDU. So those are my two big purchases. We'll be using them in my game club, but also using them in my uh, my classroom. So dual purpose. Nice. Uh, next article here is, is women significantly outnumber teenage boys in gamer demographics. So I'm going to throw this out. See, this is Jerry's job and he's not here. So I don't know if this is kind of crazy. So, okay, we have this here. There we go. So we have uh, women. The first paragraph here, adult female gamers have unseated boys uh, under the age of 18 as the largest video game uh, game playing demographic in the U.S. That's interesting. So, and as I was sharing before, and this was a surprise to a lot of people, that more I, about half of my kids that show up for Game Club are girls. And I think you guys were talking about something before the show about girl gamers. Yeah, it actually doesn't surprise me. So we just got our uh, year three report back from our external evaluator, and one of the pieces of data they collected was about how much do kids think they're gamers? And one of the really interesting pieces to me is that there was no difference at all between how much time females play games outside of school and how much time males play games outside of schools. And it averages about five hours a week. And even at five hours a week, well over two-thirds of them don't consider themselves gamers. No. No, and that's that's a uh, <laughs> yeah. And you even if you ask uh, like older generations and certain groups, you ask them, "Are you a gamer?" And they'll say, "No." Do you play Candy Crush? Yeah, I'm addicted to Candy Crush. <laughs> so you know that's a game. Yeah. Oh, you know Wordle. You know the you know Scrabble. Those those games. Um, they don't consider those games. I mean, my wife is totally addicted to Candy Crush. But she would not consider herself a gamer. Yeah, so she just she just got she got like crushed it. You know, she <laughs> did one of those tonight, and I'm just like, oh my goodness. Okay, but so what's that? But not a gamer. Not a, no. She's oh no. She's no. not a gamer. Not a gamer. So and of course the games that they do play are different. But I also see, especially with the younger generation, the girls, um, they really like the role playing games. Um, you know that that take you on adventures. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yes, I got a lot of girls that play Minecraft, but you know, show them some of these uh, role-playing games where they can create their own character and build that up and make decisions. You know, it's its own um, saga in a, in, a, in a sense, and they can create. You know, did you guys grow up with? Did you ever read those Choose Your Own Adventure? Yes. Books? You yes. never, you never cheated and flipped through the pages, did you? 
So, uh, but that's that's a, there's something about it in, in in choosing your own story and and the digital stories are, that are today are just they're amazing, amazing. So I thought that was an interesting story. We'll have this one in the in the show notes. Uh, the next one here, just real quick, uh, Gen Con um, is it's redirecting. Gen Con uh, tributes record-breaking 2014 numbers to a growing partnership between gamers and the Indianapolis community, and it has been pretty amazing. I mean, the I think he, Jerry even talked about this last time we uh, mentioned it. The um, uh, the whole downtown area, they will the restaurants get involved, uh, the the stores in the area. They will. It's like game board game themed. Uh, for the whole downtown, and I can't. Am I reading this right? This year reached more than 14 percent year-over-year growth of weekend turnstile tenants, 184,699 unique attendants, and then unique attendance of 56,614. That is awesome. So you have 56,000 unique attendees, and then over four days you have turnstiles, 184,700. That is awesome. Go indie. And I think, and what's that? Go indie. Yeah. Well, and I think board gaming in general has grown. Um, we have fun as a family playing board games, and that's you know that's good. That's good family time. Good quality time. So okay, moving on to why you are here, other than you listening to me, bab you know, babble here. Um, we connected up in a in in the great state of Wisconsin in this wonderful town called Madison at a wonderful conference called GLS and uh, I am so glad that that we did and you started talking about all the cool things that are happening down in Huntsville and, and, and don't take this wrong because it's one of those things Huntsville in an area is an amazing area and it's, it's pretty unique wouldn't you say yeah yeah it's pretty, pretty unique area um, I've driven through Alabama. Uh, my wife's best friend is south of Birmingham. Um, it's 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 a it's a wonderful state, but it's very it's unique in its own sense. And then you have this area up in Huntsville. What makes Huntsville so special for those that might not know? I'm gonna let the person who is born and raised here <laughs> answer that question. Sure. Um, so Huntsville has a, a little bit of a different flavor than a lot of Alabama, I think, because there's a lot of people here that weren't born and raised in Huntsville that have come here for um, military jobs. There's a big military presence with Redstone Arsenal here, as well as um, NASA. And we are called the Rocket City a whole lot because this is where the Space and Rocket Center is, and there's um, a huge NASA presence here. And so there are a lot of engineers in Huntsville mm -hmm. and a lot of people that have moved in. And so it has this kind of eclectic feel that's not, um, it's kind of a melting pot of sorts. And then kind of where we work at a biotech institute, there's becoming a bigger kind of biotech tech presence as well. So it's um, it's a bit of a nerdy kind of city. That And that's cool. And it, and it helps that it is a beautiful area. Yeah. We also claim... Um, Curse. I don't know if you know uh, Curse Gaming. Curse Gaming. Yeah. Do you know Curse? I don't. Maybe I do, but it's not popping up in my head. I'm writing it down. They are the largest creator and distributor of add-ons for 
basically all the Blizzard games. So World of Warcraft oh. this, I think, as nicely as it does without Curse. Gotcha. Uh, so Curse is located here in Huntsville. So there's actually kind of a gaming community here as well, which is kind of fun for me because I've recently started getting more involved in that that community that's not work-related but also just kind of fun-related. Two connections here. You said it's – is it called Redstone? Yes. Mm -hmm. And if you play Minecraft, Redstone is the way that you actually can create and connect and um, actually very simple coding, but you, you can connect and make mechanisms using redstone in Minecraft. Huh. I wonder if there's a connection there. I don't know. So, and then, um, but you also said there was the military bases there, and you had a you had some you had a figurine up up above on one of your uh, bookcases. Uh, yeah. So, um, let's see if we can get it in the in the shot here. So there it is. So real heroes. So is there another game that's developed down there? Uh, so we are home to uh, the U.S. Army's game studio. It's about 170 people big. It's a huge game studio. Wow. Yeah, they. <laughs> I did not know it was that big. Um, they produce the the game America's Army, and um, it's available on Xbox and desktop and basically all kinds of different platforms, but. Um, we know a few people who work there and have been talking with them about how we get more involved. And um, they're, a, they're a big studio. Most of what they do, though, is simulation specifically for the Army, not actual game design. That makes sense because you, I, would hear, I hear for years that the Pentagon is the largest purveyor and creator of games. Absolutely. And uh, they, they, they've spent a little bit of money on that. Yeah, the simulations. Apparently okay, so 170 full-time employees, they can. That's I mean, that's a pretty large that's pretty large studio. Yeah, yeah that's that's pretty cool. Um, okay, so what's so what group are you part of? What's what do you what's where do you work at? <laughs> so, we work at a uh, not-for-profit research institute called Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. And this institute has three different missions. There's a research mission, which is really basic biotech, genetics, genomics, human health, agriculture research. There's an education arm, which is what Kelly and I are part of, which is dedicated to building the future workforce and increasing the public and general genetic and genomic literacy. And then there's a whole enterprise uh, leg of the, of the mission as well that is really about economic development and growing emerging and new companies in the biotech field to actually bring all this great research to market. That's, yeah, it sounds like you got a lot of bases covered. Um, we're, we're, not, we're not absolutely unique, but we're one of a few select groups of folks now in the world that are doing this kind of triangulation with this kind of intent. And, and I'm trying to make the connection here. Is did we talk about, uh, was there a middle school or a group of middle schools that were doing um, basically vocational in Hudson? Or not, in Hudsonville? Not, no. Um, well, we certainly have a large uh, cohort of career tech kinds of education opportunities here. And that's, um, and it's, and you have it in, is it in the middle school? 
um, it kind of spans throughout. Uh, middle school is a big one. You're you're right. So I I actually live in a suburb called Madison, and I sit on. That's funny. Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I sit on uh, the Career Tech Advisory Council for that city for their for their school district, and they've just gotten um, a little over half a million dollars to put specifically toward um, career tech kinds of initiatives in the middle school and high school. That's going to have to be another discussion for another day because that that intrigues me greatly. And I think the discussion we had while we were up at GLS was one that, you know, really secondary schools should almost be a, a testing bed for students to figure out what they want to do. You're nodding your head because you remember the conversation. Of, that it's, instead of spending $30,000 a year in a, in a college institution trying to figure out, eh, I want to change my major. <laughs> <laughs> again. Yeah, that's the secondary school should be to try out new things. Um, yes, to train. You know, you want a literate workforce. You want, and that's something too. That uh, jumping back to um, some of the problems that have been up in Chicago and in and, and St. Louis and and working with youth is that education's the key. Um, you know, you get a good education. You don't have to get involved in bad things. You can have a good job. You can have a successful career. And it's difficult. It's not easy. But um, giving the skills to the students in the secondary schools and moving that along um, and then not have them look at college as a uh, or even a even a vocational school and uh, you know in the upper levels is not a um, is not a bad thing. It's not an out of reach you know for those students. So that's like I said, that's another discussion for another time because that that intrigued me greatly when we talked about that up in Madison, and I think it's I think that's a model that uh, other districts, other schools, other states really need to look at. So, but you've done something, you've created something that um, um, a science-based game. So what what is the game called, and what uh, what are you trying to accomplish? What's the goal of this game? So the game's called Touching Triton, and it's the the storyline is pretty simple actually. You're trying to keep six people alive. Um, so these six individuals have already been selected for a 20-year spaceflight mission that leaves Earth's orbit, travels on a ship all the way out to um, Neptune, and lands on a moon out there called Triton. Sets up a small base camp, turns around, and comes all the way back home. But that's a 20-year mission which means there's lots and lots of health things that can happen over an adult's life in 20 years. Um, so we developed Touching Triton with the, with the key idea of there are really complicated, complex, common diseases that exist in the human population. And in the school system, we ignore this entirely. Instead, what we talk about are the very rare conditions. And we talk about rare conditions like sickle cell or cystic fibrosis or uh, hemophilia and those kinds of things, where most kids have very, very little actual experience with that. But if you talk about diabetes or heart disease or uh, Parkinson's, kids have a great familiarity with those things because they've got family members or they've got friends or aunts or uncles or whatever who have all of those things. So the goal behind Touching Triton is to really start looking at these common complex diseases and how, they're, how risk for those diseases is influenced by your environment, your family history, 
and your genetics and kind of how all those things interplay with each other in this complicated mesh to give you not, yes, I will definitely get this, or no, I won't, but actually give you some risk estimate of how likely are you to actually get those diseases. And then we present the students with some options of how are you going to mitigate that risk? How are you going to treat the disease if it shows up? So they get to play through all these different um, kinds of thought processes as they work through the game. So do they start, does it start bef uh, in when you pick candidates to go on this mission? Or are they already on the mission and this is what you're dealing with? So the, the, the student or the user of the game um, is taking on a role of, of a person who's working kind of in, in human resources for this um, fictional company that's going to send these people off to Triton. And so they are given, these are the six people going. Um, we are certainly not introducing the concept of genetic discrimination or, or kicking anybody off of their job um, based on their <laughs> genetics. But these are the six people that are going because they have this really critical skill set that's needed. And um, the students are, nobody's left Earth yet, but they have to look at all that information and figure out what needs to be packed on this spaceship that's going to be going that will help either prevent these diseases from happening or treating them if they do. And so, so explains your name and your title, I guess your title of your job as a genetic counselor. So because so, that's your area, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so that, that totally <laughs> makes sense now. So what level are you talking about for, I guess, science? Because you're, you're looking at, you're given the, the mix of, of, are we calling them astronauts? Crew. Crew, okay, that are heading for this 20-year mission. And, you know, um, I guess, what are, what are they trying to do? Did I, I think I, I had a question in my head. <laughs> kind of lost it there. But what's the, um, no, what, okay, so they're on this mission. They have, uh, they look at the genetics, and they try to pack so what are some of the things that they're packing with them on this trip? So if you take, for example, um, a condition like diabetes, a person who has a, if, if the student looks at the data and they say, wow, I'm really concerned about this person's risk for diabetes, I'm not so concerned about their risk for Parkinson's. So they're going to go and look, and, and we don't expect them to know exactly, you know, what treatments are out there for diabetes, but we have them listed for them and have some options, and we'll say, hey, if you pack an exercise suite, we're going to assume that person's going to actually use that exercise suite for the next 20 years, and that's probably going to lower their risk for diabetes okay, or heart disease and a whole bunch of other things. Um, so they can pack that as an option. That's going to lower the likelihood that that's going to happen when they hit launch. Um, okay. So, oh, go ahead. And then, uh, likewise, that's, that's kind of a preventative option, but then there's also things like insulin that they could pack that would, if that person does get diabetes, that would help treat that condition while they're gone. So there's things that will prevent and also things that will treat it if it happens. So, but I can't imagine packing a spaceship with 20 years of insulin. So is there, are, are they having to uh, have a way to create these items that they need? Or is it, you're just packing a ship? You're just packing a ship. Now, okay. I'll say with the insulin example, there is a way to create it. One of the options that they have is, yeah, you can take the you know, 20 pallets of insulin with you. 
Or can you imagine? Yeah, I know. Or you can take the one pallet that is required to grow your own genetically modified bacteria that produce insulin. Perfect. Oh. Yeah, that's that was that's kind of my thought because you know when you when you hear about missions to Mars and other places, how are you going to produce oxygen? You know, uh, air to breathe. How are you going to produce the things that you need without having to bring shipments to these people all the time? Uh, so they can be self-sufficient. Right. Um, we do take a little bit of leap of faith and a little um, uh, leap of fiction, I guess. We're kind of set in the near future. So we actually worked with NASA pretty extensively on what the ship design would have to look like and the kinds of things that would have to be on board a ship like this in order for them to do a 20-year mission. So the NASA uh, design team here in Huntsville who designs the next generation space flight systems um, worked with us to actually design the ship for the mission. So there are things like the type of engine that's on the ship is a real less mystic engine. And what kind of engine is it? So this is um, an engine that that uses plasma. Um, that that basically <laughs> exactly exactly um, that basically. Dust particles, um, very, very tiny amounts of radioactive material and puts them between two lasers and that ignites that dust particle and over a very long period of time slowly accelerates the ship. Um, so it doesn't produce a lot of acceleration, but over time it actually reaches um, speeds hundreds of times faster than any rocket can. Um, I don't know. I'm geeking out on that. That sounds yeah. pretty cool. That sounds pretty awesome. So you you have so it's even at that speed, it's still going to take them twenty years. Oh yeah. Or well, think, about, think about how far Neptune is. Well, yeah. Well, okay. I don't think any. Uh, you guys probably can, but for normal people, the the thought of that distance is just it's crazy. I don't think most people can actually, you know, conceptualize that. So here's a little factoid. Do you know why Neptune is always blue in the pictures? No. Why is Neptune always blue in the pictures? Because the light from the sun, the only wavelengths that actually reach the surface of Neptune are the shortest wavelengths of visible light, which are in the blue and purple spectrum. Blue. That that now that's hey, I learned something new. So I'm learning a lot of new things, by the way, but that's a cool one. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's you know the that's, others are cool too, but you know, yes. Yeah. You pull out of your pocket any day. <laughs> so that that is that is pretty that's pretty awesome. Um, okay, so I'm thinking of all the decisions that are being made, all the possible outcomes. Uh, are there random variables that pop up? Um, yes. So okay. There's this rather extensive backend algorithm that exists within the game. So every mission that the students are involved in is unique. Because we're doing risk, if a crew member ends up with a modified risk of 20% for Parkinson's disease, then there is an algorithm as soon as that student presses launch that runs that takes into account for that crew member, there's a 20% chance they'll actually end up with Parkinson's disease. And then if that happens in that 20%, then it looks to see what's been packed to treat Parkinson's disease. And if there is something, that treatment may or may not actually work. 
And so then that comes in. But if it does, doesn't work, and they're still getting Parkinson's disease, then there's the whole process of, well, how old is that person? When are they likely to actually get it? What point during the mission are they going to get it? Wow. How long can they survive with untreated Parkinson's disease? That's pretty – well, Parkinson's not cool, but that's pretty cool that, you know, of, of what you've thought and put into that. And then here – so you have all these algorithms that are there. Now, is there a way to see how the students make those decisions? Are you able to capture that? Or are you able to, as a teacher, as a student, actually able to see – how their decisions are made, and can they uh, review that and and see, you know, um, I guess assess themselves, and can the teachers assess the decision making by the students? You want to talk a little bit about Serena? Sure. Um, so as far as um, what the what the teachers see, um, so there's when within the game there's a students can log in and teachers can log in and create classes and set up missions so that the teachers can actually real-time see what the students are doing in the activity. How far are they along? Have they um, flagged the, the, the family history or the pedigree correctly and kind of from their own tablet or their own computer see what's happening in the room, which is really, really nice. Um, and they can watch, you know, students and see what, how they've assessed that risk you know, we don't expect students to um, be a medical geneticist um, and be able to look at the data and say, um, you know, this person's risk is approximately 27.5%. Not even a medical geneticist can get to that kind of level of reliability right. because there's just so much we don't know. And so we certainly don't want students um, thinking that there's a correct answer, per se, that they're trying to get at. Um, but that they can kind of assess do we think the risk is higher or lower than the general population? Are you more or less concerned about this? Um, and, this and the teachers can see where the students are putting that risk and look for things that may look a little off and have some conversations about why students did it a certain way. Um, we also have taken the, the data that we've used in the game and um, sent it out to a set of, of experts, of genetic counselors and medical geneticists, and said, hey, if you had a patient walk in with this data, what would you think about their risk? And so we have a set of kind of expert opinions and our hope over the next little while is to, to actually send that out and get more and more ex expert data that the students and teachers actually get to see at the end of it and see where their risk assessments compared to those experts. Um, not that we expect it to be spot on, but they can see how close was I and wow, here's two experts that actually came to very different conclusions based on the same data. And that happens. And it does. <laughs> it happens a lot. Um, so Go ahead. So one of the other things that we've intentionally done within game is you have, you're not alone in the process as the player. So there's a whole set of advisors. So I know you, you, know, you mentioned civilization earlier. Um, CIF 4 was a huge inspiration, actually, for how some of the mechanics of of touching Triton work. So you have a panel of, of expert advisors in okay, yeah. as well. Um, one of which is a, a quirky little girl um, named Serena. Uh, and she's your pedagogical agent. She's the person that's telling you how to actually manipulate the screen. But she's also your boss. And so you actually send her your choices for how you're viewing the medical record or how you're viewing the pedigree or how you're viewing the genetic data. 
um, and the decision you're making. And she gives you real-time feedback about, you know what, you missed way too many here. I am not allowing this to go through. You have to redo it. Or, yeah, you missed some, but I think it'll be fine. Or, wow, you got them all right. Great job. So do the, do the students, okay, so they make the decision. Um, they, if, if it, it's Serena, you said? Yep. Okay, so Serena says, hey, this is great. You send them on their mission. Do you get, once you hit launch, does it give you kind of like a, is it done? You get a printout, this is what happened? Or are you helping them along this, this whole mission? Sure. Um, so launch is, is interesting. It, um, currently, if you play today, launch is a fairly static, passive kind of piece. Um, you hit the launch, screen, launch button, a new screen pops up, it counts down, um, you get a schematic of where the ship is, um, there's a bunch of scrolling text that tells you what's going on on the ship and who's got what disease and how it was treated and things like that. It goes a little faster than 20 years there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was hoping it wasn't taking 20 years. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but not, not 10 seconds either. So, yeah. What's that? We're looking for longevity of playership here. We, you gotcha. know, 20 years, right? No, it takes about, <laughs> it takes about a minute, two minutes to go through. Okay. Um, but we're actually in the process of redesigning that because we feel it's really important to make that just as beautiful and interactive as the rest of the game. Um, the one thing we can't get to at this point is to actually have the player manipulate situations while they're on the mission to actually make any difference. Yeah, that's that's my thought was, you know, okay, you have the insulin, you know, are they able to make it correctly? You know, they grow the whatever the plan is, are they able to make it correctly? They able to give it, and so yeah. How do you break that down? Yeah. Uh, is it by year? Is it by month? You know, I could I could see a lot of different variables in decision making, mm -hmm. which can change the out. Even though you might have chosen poorly, maybe there's something you could do along the road that could change the outcome. Yeah. So one of the constraints for us is that we wanted the entire game to be able to be played in one 90-minute block. Okay. So. If you dealt with all this data and you've worked through all these pieces and you've gone through packing and you're playing in multiplayer and you've had lots of conversations with other students who are on your same mission working together, and now you launch and now you have to spend that additional time to actually gotcha. and do all those pieces, right? It was too long, and so we focused more on the front end. Yeah, I think though, you know, if um, there are funders watching and you want to fund that next project. <laughs> Hey, um, we're here and available. Yeah, it sounds like you're. You, that would be an interest of yours, though. Absolutely, absolutely. To, to have that complete, you know, mission, and it would give flexibility to um, to teachers that okay, we can do this part. We can also do this part. Um, so you have. So the main goal of the game is to learn about genetics, correct? Genetics of of complex disease of. Okay. Of those things like diabetes and heart disease that are that are complicated and are not given a whole lot of time and attention in the classrooms right now. Yeah. And and along that way, uh, students, teachers, you know, whoever administrate can see the data and see the uh, what the students, what decisions the students are making, mm -hmm. and teachers can assess that. Students, I think it's also very important that students are able to look at that data and see 
what mistakes they made and be able to adjust those also. And then uh, the key thing right now, especially, uh, is this aligned somewhat to G NGSS? Uh, there's a lot of NGSS overlap. So okay. certainly a lot of the process of science uh, piece of NGSS, um, how students are wrestling with real world data. Everything that is in here is based on real world data. These are real genetic variants that impact disease with the way in which we present it in the game. Um, these are all real-world environmental factors and risk factors in medical record. Um, these are, are uh, family histories that would impact uh, how a physician or a, a geneticist would actually determine risk for these diseases. The population incidence of these diseases were all taken from um, real scientific studies. So a lot of those pieces uh, just naturally kind of fit into where NGSS is going um, with the process of science and getting students authentic experience. And are there lessons and kind of like a unit or are there you know plans that are already that you're creating or will create or are created that that teachers will be able to get access to and to be able to integrate this easily? Yeah so um, what we definitely want is flexibility for teachers is not say you know, this is the module that this is the PowerPoint you should give at the front end and this is your wrap-up discussion that teachers can can certainly do it in a lot of ways um, you know you mentioned a minute ago about you know you might do a little bit now a little bit later and we have teachers doing things that way that because there is a login process and it the way the game is set up is every single click is saved and so if that's it, nice it happens with the Wi-Fi and the computer goes down oh, yeah. Student says, "Hey, I'm going to stop right here," and they pick back up later. They're exactly where they were, um, and so we have teachers doing it in, in some different kind of ways. Um, but we certainly are in the process of developing additional resources, um, both for teachers and figuring out how to implement this and giving them ideas and extra resources and tools, um, but also background content for the teachers so they know more about complex genetics going in. Um, as well as as for the students that will be on kind of a, on a companion website because we want everything to be very digital. And this is all it's an online experience, correct? It's it's online game. Correct. Yes. And cost. Free. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And that's that's it's got and that it it's got to be that way. I yeah, mean, we are funded by the National Institutes of Health. We have a Science Education Partnership Award uh, that was awarded uh, three, a little over three years ago. Um, so we're very happy about that. Um, NIH ponied up about a $1.2 million for us to do this. Um, so thank you, NIH. And um, Lockheed Martin has actually also uh, become interested in it and funded us uh, a few different times to help with the integration of mathematics into the game as well because there is some of that. Um, and then Hudson Alpha, the, the institute itself, has actually put in quite a bit of, of money and time, um, certainly as far as personnel goes, um, to make sure that, that this is a, a something that really makes a, a big difference in how we teach this content. Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing you guys do see that, yes, genetics, this is the main part of it, but there's a lot of branches, like you said, with the mathematics, with the, the, the other aspects of science that are involved in that. Um, there's social, you know, uh, implications and, 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 you know, being able to, like I said, this is me just 
brainstorming, you have a whole, and, and this might be how it is, you have a whole uh, group of candidates and then you're choosing, is that how it happens? Is it, or do you get, you get what you get? In our game, you get what you get. Now, if you were to go to Houston and actually talk to NASA, that's not how it actually works. No, no. It's <laughs> kind of scary. It's like, uh, we'll just send these people with very, you know, critical di possible diseases that, you know, send them on a huge trip. No, they, I mean, they're running them through the ringers yeah. and but, trying to get them, uh, yeah. But if you think about a 20-year spaceflight mission, you not only have to find people with a small crew of six who can do the work, so highly specialized kinds of individuals. That's true. But also have a reason to give up 20 years of their adult life. So your pool's going to be relatively small. Um, and I think there's... You probably have a lot of volunteers, but they won't have the skill. <laughs> well, and you know, Mars One, I think, is what it's called. Um, if you've heard that, now has over 100,000 people who have oh, yeah. signed up. So, yeah, of course, you're going to have tons of volunteers. Whether or not they can do the job is probably a completely different story. That's that's why we have, I mean, you know, the NASA, you know, method of, of going through that and, and and basically filtering out those that are capable and not, it's it's, it's a very small group. Right. Very right. small group. Uh, unless you're Howard Wallowitz and, you know, a Jewish big guy. So, I don't know. I don't know how he gets on to the space program, but that's a whole nother. <laughs> it was a very short mission. <laughs> it was very... That's, I love that show. Okay, right. so um, anything, this is awesome, and I, I already have the page. I'm going to put all the notes here. There's a lot of little notes here that I think we, 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 I think we covered pretty well, mm -hmm. um, and I will also put this onto the, into the show notes, but I already have probably a handful of teachers that I'm going to send this, uh, this link off to, and okay. they're probably going to start drooling and go, let me at it. So, well, um, so, oh, can you even get to it? Yes, yes. So, <laughs> the thing is, um, kind of where where we stand right now. You know, the game is um, fully functional. Like we talked about, there is some pretty big redesigns coming down the pike for the launch screen um, in making it even more engaging. Um, but the other big pieces for us over the next two years, where we still have grant funding, is about uh, developing additional resources and tools for teachers and doing training. So um, here in a couple of months, we're going to start doing a series of um, one-day in-person trainings across the state of Alabama, um, not just for Alabama teachers, but our neighboring states as well if they want to travel over, um, of training teachers in how to use this in their classrooms. It, the program's there, but we know that right now we don't have a whole lot of those teacher tools and how to do this up online yet, and so we are offering more in the face-to-face -face training. Um, and since this is a free game and the resources are go going to be free, uh, just to let you know, there are several spaces out there for teachers. Uh, one is Educade, mm -hmm. um, another one, a Graphite, mm -hmm. and the other one that I've been working with, which is kind of, it seems like it's been a hi hiatus, which has been through University of Wisconsin-Madison and MIT, is Playful Learning. Right. And that is, I just found out actually today that they're, they got their second year of funding. So hopefully that's going to be pushing forward uh, for that. So, you know, getting that, you, having it on your site, yes, but also getting it out to the other, those other areas coming on here, like, you know, 
coming. Thank you so much for coming on here, and then uh, and sharing that. But having those resources out there, because the more you can spread the word about it, the better off. Uh, it, it, everybody's a winner. Well, and you'll see a lot of us because we're going to hit the national scene at least the science teacher conferences as well. Um, so we'll be at the National Association of Biology Teachers meeting. We'll be at the National Science Teachers Association meeting. We're going to try to hit some state meetings. Um, so this is just the start of our our advertising and push and marketing uh, kind of piece for for touching Triton. And one last thing that just popped in my head. Uh, I'm sure you know about Challenger Learning Centers. Yes. That I could see a wonderful connection. Yeah. Uh, for you know what they do too. We actually met some of those folks um, at GLS. Um, so there, Are they there? There was one person who was there from a Challenger Learning Center out east somewhere. I can't remember exactly where. Um, wow. I have a card in the stack. We have one. Uh, Libby Norcross. I'll have to. Uh, put her name out there. She is awesome. She's been going around. She did a TEDx talk uh, out west. Uh, she's starting to. She, she was a former student teacher within uh, my team and within my building in middle school, and now she's running the Challenger Learning Center that we have here in Bloomington Normal, and uh, which is just a great, great facility. Mm -hmm. And uh, they do some wonderful things. So yeah, this totally connects right to it. Well, Zach, we appreciate so much having us on and, and taking the time with us. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure we will be in touch. And uh, hopefully, I don't know if you'll be back at GLS. Yes, we'll be there. Love GLS. Okay. We'll uh, be over a board game. <laughs> you know what? I like that. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for listening to this week's EdGamer podcast. Please follow us on edreach.us and also follow all the great podcasts and blog posts on the EdReach Network. Have a great week.